Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host as always. We have a variety of different topics to discuss this week as always. Uh, we'll kick off by talking about Apple and China. We had some interesting news over the last few days in relation to Apple's share price and an email from Tim Cook to uh, Jim Cramer about Apple's performance in China during the current quarter. Uh, the second topic, our question of the week, will be focused on cars and especially technology in cars and where that's heading and the role that Apple might play in all of that. And then our third topic, uh, sticking with Apple, um, will be the evolution of Apple's retail strategy, how things are changing in retail. There have been some reports recently and now confirmed by things actually happening in stores in terms of the way Apple's changing the way it sells some of its products. And then as always, at the end of the episode, we'll have our weekly pick. And that's where we recommend something that one of us has been using and enjoying. Uh, and Aaron has the duties this week on that. So we'll start out by talking about Apple and China. And the news here, if you didn't see it, um, is that over the last few weeks now, Apple's share price has been uh, dropping fairly quickly um, due to, I think, a couple of specific worries about China. One is the Chinese stock market has really suffered lately. Uh, there's been something of a crash there. Uh, related to that, the government has chosen to um, devalue the currency, which is something they haven't done for a while now. And then thirdly, uh, smartphone sales in China have been slowing, uh, and depending on who you believe, have been actually in slight decline over the last few months. Um, Gartner, for example, says that the, the sales shrank slightly year on year in Q2. I think IDC had a very low growth rate and others have had uh, similar numbers. So whether it's growing only slightly or shrinking, the point is that the overall envelope for smartphones in China isn't growing. And so because of all these three things, people have been starting to worry about Apple, given that Apple has been performing phenomenally well in China over the last few quarters. And if something happens in China, that would have an outsized impact on Apple's performance overall. So that's kind of the backdrop to what happened um, then uh, Monday morning. I guess over the weekend, Jim Cramer, who hosts uh, CNBC's Mad Money uh, program about stocks, uh, had emailed Tim Cook over the weekend and uh, asked him about China and said, you know, there's a number of people have these concerns about China. Is there anything you want to say? And Tim Cook had actually emailed him back first thing Monday morning saying that actually trends we're seeing in China this quarter are very good without any specifics. We're seeing strong growth still. Um, the app store is performing really well and a number of other things without providing any specific metrics basically provided some reassurance around Apple's performance in China during the current quarter. Um, since then, Apple stock, along with the stocks of a number of other tech companies, have actually started to rise again uh, following what looked like it was the beginnings of a real crash on Monday morning. So that's the context, um, and, and that's what we're going to talk about. So Aaron, any initial thoughts about all of that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things to talk about, only because there's so much going on with China's economy right now. I mean, I mean the, my very first thought is that the freak out about this Chinese stock market um, is is somewhat misplaced only because as it relates to apple i mean it's somewhat misplaced because markets are not economies um right you know equities markets always i mean i mean there's obviously a general trend where they move in the same direction and clearly an equities market tanking can have economic effects um and the inverse is true but they can often move independently um it, at least in right. terms of velocity if not necessarily you know, in separate directions. And so, you know, the Chinese stock market, I think I read has lost it's right now. It's about where it was in April of, of 14. And that's not, I mean, that's bad, but 
it, it feels like a massive sell-off, largely, most of all, because the market has been growing so rapidly, right? And, right, right. And it, it, it certainly hasn't gone down as far as other stock markets have gone in the past. So, I, you know, but everybody, t the stock market is sort of this, this uh, mind's eye into everybody's worst fears. And mm -hmm. it's, it yeah. tends to react first and overreact to things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think we're seeing some of that. That said, I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, an economist, and so I can't predict what's going to happen to Chinese, the, to the, to the Chinese economy any, with any reliability. But th there's certainly troubling signs. But I don't think it's time to freak out. Yeah, that's been kind of my main reaction too. That the, the stock market itself is at best a leading indicator, and as you say, maybe an over indicator of other things that may come later. Um, but you know, in and of itself, a fall in various stock prices doesn't necessarily have to have any kind of impact on consumer purchasing behavior or anything like that, especially in the short term. Um, so yeah, I, I, I felt kind of the same way about that. What, what about these other issues in terms of the, the currency? I think Vox had an interesting piece this week about uh, the currency impact and how that might affect Apple, given that it manufactures in greater China, including Taiwan, um, but pays its bills in dollars, um, whereas when it sells in China, it sells in yuan, it sells in the local currency. And so to the extent that the currency is devalued, its costs don't necessarily go down, but unless it changes its prices, the actual dollar revenue it gets per device uh, decline. So that, that seems like it might be a more legitimate concern, although it kind of assumes a couple of things um, about, you know, the fact that Apple doesn't change pricing, for example, which may not be a good assumption if the currency comes down enough. Um, the other worry, I guess, is the, the one about the shrinking Chinese smartphone market. Yeah, I, it's hard to say if the market's going to shrink in response. I mean, because the whole point of the devaluation is to make Chinese exports more attractive, right? I mean, what's going to happen is because the because if the if the value of the yuan goes down, that means people can buy more exports from China, and obviously that's what's been driving China's growth for the last couple of decades is is right. this massive export market. And uh, it, it, I mean, part, part what makes this so scary is that is that the value of the yuan is in the hands of bureaucrats. And I think that's what I think that's what adds greatly to the uncertainty is because the yuan is a floating peg, in terms of its valuation. Right? It gets it, it gets room to float a little bit relative to the dollar, but it's pegged to the dollar. Right. And so, the problem is we never really know what uh, what the true market value of the yuan would be uh, if it was completely it was freed allowed up. to float freely. Right. Yeah. Which most, you know, most other major economies have a free floating currency. And, mm -hmm. and so you, there's a, a lot of strength that comes from that because there's less shock, right? I mean, the dollar right. can move more gradually in the directions it needs to move and it kind of freaks people out less. And so much of economic forecasting has to do with our expectations and not, you know, the, the problem with bureaucrats, I mean, for example, when the yuan got devalued and then again got devalued so quickly, uh, I think that was the sort of thing that got people kind of freaking out because if it had been free floating all along, you know, this this wouldn't have been nearly as scary, I think. Um, and, and so I don't know. I mean, the idea is right is that is that Chinese exports become cheaper as a result with the mm -hmm. yuan devalued manufacturing becomes cheaper for Apple. 
um, in the end, this is all going to, it's just hard to know how this will all wash out in Apple's bottom line because there there are way too many moving parts for anybody to predict that with accuracy. Even Apple's predictions, you know, Apple on its guidance is pretty dang amazing. I mean, with the accuracy with which Apple sticks to its guidance has been, I think, remarkable um, over the years that it's, you know, been growing. And I'm not sure even Apple's people could predict, you know, what a Chinese recession might do, for example. Um, of course, the Chinese recession is going to be bad for a lot of people, not just for Apple. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the thing you just mentioned about the bureaucrats and the currency kind of taps into a broader concern that people generally have about China, which is that it's not like other economies, most other economies around the world, in that there are people in charge who have motives that often have nothing to do with just stabilizing the economy. And there's an element of protectionism, there's an element of a certain political philosophy, and there are other things which sometimes lead those bureaucrats to make decisions that aren't necessarily in the best short-term interests of companies that are operating in China's economy, but are perhaps in the best interests of, or perceived to be in the best interests of Chinese companies specifically or something else. And so that's an ongoing worry that I think always applies to any international company, especially doing business in China. You just never know what the government might do, whether it's the currency, whether it's something else that might negatively impact a company like Apple that does tons of business in the country, but is sometimes seen as a threat to some of the domestic competitors that they have. Oh, absolutely. So I think that's that's a big issue always with, with Apple in China, but to some extent with any foreign company in China. Uh, that's absolutely true. In, in fact, uh, the government's control over the media there it, it provides a great example of this because Apple gets oh, picked yeah. on by the national media sources on a semi-regular basis. Uh, right. Whether they're sort of casting aspersions on on Apple being a spy for the United States, or mm-hmm. or you know any other sort of accusation, that just comes from the fact that Apple's an American company, yeah. and, and that sort of capricious power that the government can have, I think, I think it can manifest itself, like you're saying, in all kinds of ways that has nothing to do mm-hmm. with the currency devaluation but still right. could pretty negatively affect Apple. But the other thing about China, you know, I, so I have a friend who runs a business in China. They, they provide benefits to factory workers. And one of the first things he has to say about China is that, uh, is that it has surprised him in a million different ways. Um, and I, I think we have a hard time understanding what's really going on over there. I, I think you really need to be an expert in China, in Chinese culture, um, and the Chinese economy specifically to have any confidence. And that's the problem with, you know, Apple stock getting hammered is the people who are hammering it are the ones who are not experts in Chinese economy. And so they, I think, make shorthand decisions uh, without all the information. I mean, it's a huge economy for one. It's the second largest in the world now, but it's also, but the number of participants is larger than any other country in the world, just by the number of citizens. And the another thing that makes it really unique is how massive and quickly growing the middle class is in China versus other countries. Right. And it's hard to know how much. I mean, let's say there was a Chinese recession. It's hard to know how much this middle class. Uh, and growing upper class too would bear the brunt. Uh, it seems likely, as is often the case in recessions, that it'd actually be the poorest in the country that would bear the major brunt of the recession. And so it's hard to say how much that affects Apple's demand, especially because in a lot of ways Apple's kind of scratching the surface of China. 
Right. And I think that was Tim Cook's point in his email too. I mean, he mentioned LTE penetration specifically, which is related to this, but it's really just about, you know, Apple with the larger devices and with expanding retail distribution in China, you know, opening up lots of retail stores, which is something that we'll probably come back to later on in this episode. But there's lots of things that Apple's doing to expand distribution and the opportunities to sell iPhones in China. And so there is definitely that upside there. And, and this raises the broader issue of this third concern that people have had, which is about the slowing smartphone market the funny thing is you know these numbers that have come out they're all related to q2 um you know the second quarter of the 2015 calendar year and the point is we already know how apple did in that quarter in china and it did phenomenally well you know its growth was huge in the iphone specifically and even beyond the iphone in china um and so you know we already know related in, in relation to these poor overall market numbers for smartphones in china that apple did just fine uh, in Q2, and you know Tim Cook's email was clearly intended to be reassuring about uh, roughly the same thing happening in Q3. The point is that Apple seems to be somewhat immune to all of this, and that's because Apple isn't largely capturing first-time smartphone customers. It's capturing switches from Android, people who've always wanted iPhones but either couldn't afford one and now can because they're they're increasingly wealthy, or people who wanted an iPhone but didn't want a small iPhone and therefore now that there are bigger iPhones want to buy one of those and, and therefore all of that's driving Apple's market share in the sort of more urban, more well-off segments within China. So the fact is that that third concern which people have talked about so much doesn't seem to actually be affecting Apple at all at this point um, and Apple seems to be doing just fine so far and at some point obviously you still hit a ceiling there if the overall smartphone market isn't growing then you know at some point if you stop growing your share then you stop growing period um, but we seem to be a very long way from that I think to your point just now so it seems like that that concerns also probably a bit overblown and I mean I, I'm, I'm curious that there are various people that have been saying oh you know stock price is back where it was a couple of years ago and um, you know things and you know it's already up again from there those comments were largely made on Monday morning but um, you know much of what Apple's done in the interim doesn't seem to have made much difference and the reality is I think if we look down the road a couple of months especially once they've reported Q3 earnings and provided guidance for Q4, I suspect that the stock will bounce right back again and, and then the story will be very different. And I think there are a lot of people making very sort of short-termist observations on Monday morning, even before the stock started heading back up again, which largely won't be borne out by what actually happens over the next couple of months. Yeah, in fact, I can't remember which analyst just upgraded Apple this week because of the battering Apple took this right. week. And um just kind of pointing out that the fears are, are irrational. Uh, yeah, I mean, the truth is, uh, you know, we don't do this program to give stock advice, but I think the right. idea that Apple is a sound investment in the long term, uh, there are a lot of arguments in favor of that, no matter what happens. I think even given a Chinese recession, um, if that were to happen, you know, I mean, if you're investing in companies like Apple for retirement, you're holding on anyway. Mm-hmm. So. Right, exactly. I've certainly heard from plenty of people anecdotally over the last couple of weeks who've said, I'm so glad the stock's so low. It gives me a chance to buy some more of it. That's right. Um, yeah, the stock market is the only store where everybody flees when they offer a sale. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's move on from that topic to our second topic, which is our question of the week this week. Um, and this is about something that I just realized this week that we hadn't really talked about on here yet, but has been a sort of perennial topic around Apple for the last few months, which is Apple's role in, in the development of in-car technology. Um, and so the question is, with, with where in-car technology is headed at the moment, what can Apple add 
uh, to the market at this point. And, and I've, I've done the sort of legwork, the homework this week on that topic. So I'll be kind of answering that question. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a mix of topics here to pull it all together. I mean, to really understand where car technology is headed, I think, and where Apple might fit in with that, we have to answer two parts of that question. So, yeah, and let's start with the first part. You know, what are the major technology changes that you see happening in cars right now? Yeah, I think generally the car market, the car manufacturers, the major ones have, have broadly now embraced this idea that the car is another electronic device to some extent it's much bigger than the other electronic devices that we use but in many respects it's you know a piece of hardware that runs software uh, and that software is capable of doing many of the same things that the other devices that we use are whether that's computers or tablets or smartphones or watches or whatever you know there's a display there's um, speakers there are microphones there's an internet connection increasingly whether the car brings its own internet connection or relies on a connection that's brought in by a user um, but the car is increasingly smart and that relates to two things it relates to the things that have traditionally happened on the sort of head unit the central console in the car and the sort of display the stereo and everything that's associated with that as well as navigation uh, but it also applies increasingly to the car's own functions as a car as a vehicle so uh, there's the sort of telemetry and telematics aspect of things there's um, there's navigation but navigation that's much smarter because it takes account of what the car knows about itself and its performance and fuel levels and uh, tire pressure and various other things uh, weather conditions and other external factors that are brought in from outside so there's a general kind of smartening of the car, everything from the entertainment and, and what's usually called infotainment experience in the car to the actual driving functions themselves. And uh, the interesting thing, of course, here is that the car manufacturers aren't just doing this by themselves. They're doing it. Um, they have a story, each of them, about their own solutions in these areas, but they're also at least somewhat realistic about the fact that people are going to want to bring some of that with them in the form of their smartphones and tablets and that they need to enable those as well and they increasingly need to integrate those into the car. And so you have these two main uh, technologies and protocols for extending smartphone capability into the car in the form of Apple's CarPlay and Android Auto from Google um, that extend the two major smartphone uh, operating systems into the car onto the in-car dashboards. We're now starting to see cars rolling off production lines that support both of those things. So that's kind of the, the broad sort of sweep of the technology advancements and so on that are happening today. Um, the only other thing that's worth mentioning briefly now, and I imagine we'll talk some more about this, is that there are investments made by a lot of players at the moment from Google to Uber to the car manufacturers themselves to mapping companies like um, here, uh, which was is just in the process of being sold by Nokia to um, some of the major German car manufacturers uh, in self-driving cars. So autonomous driving where the car can drive itself either some of the time or all of the time. Um, and that's not something that we're really seeing in market today, obviously, but it's something that all of these players are working on and that will be a major feature of in-car technology over the next five to ten years. So let's bring Apple into the conversation then, because Apple is a technology company, a consumer technology company. Although, I mean, you know, they've been making inroads to business, especially with iOS. But I guess the, the, question, the next question is, what does Apple have to add to this now? And then we'll come to the question later of what Apple has to change in order to be able to add to this stuff in the future. 
Yeah, and I think that the obvious, you know, I mentioned CarPlay just now. So the obvious thing to talk about is, you know, that that is one of Apple's roles today. And that's an evolution of what's been, you know, originally an arm's length sort of relationship and what's now an increasingly tightly integrated relationship with the car manufacturers. You know, a number of car vendors have had uh, various input options for iPods and then iPhones over the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, uh, you know, in the form of cables and then Bluetooth connectivity and so on that have extended mostly the music functions, frankly, of the car, of the smartphone into the car, um, have allowed obviously the car to charge iPhones and iPods and so on as well along the way. Um, and then with phone calls and so on um, through Bluetooth and other means, extending those onto the in-car speakers and microphones so that you can make calls hand-free and that, and that kind of stuff. Um, a couple of car manufacturers had sort of Siri buttons where you could trigger Siri on the smartphone without actually touching the phone with a, a button on the steering wheel. CarPlay is obviously the evolution of all of that, and it's the first time that Apple's actually been able to project its own interface onto that head unit in the car, the sort of display that sits in the center console. And so that's kind of where Apple is today, and what it adds is a much more user-friendly, much more familiar sort of infotainment experience for the user in the car. It's a lot safer than using their smartphone, which is what many of us still want to do instinctively when we get into the car, um, because you're not fiddling around with the phone, you're using large buttons, you're using voice control to a great extent, you're using things that are very visual and in the sort of upper part of your visual field rather than kind of looking down to something that might be uh, sitting in the center console or elsewhere away from the road and, and what you should be looking at while you're driving. So Apple is already kind of adding something there today and it's doing that alongside Google which is offering much the same thing through uh, Android Auto. Um, the big problem is that Apple can only go so far today. It can only go onto that one screen within the car. It can't project itself onto the other displays within the car and it can't uh, with the way CarPlay works today, pull any information in from the car itself in terms of how the car is performing, in terms of um, the car's um, vital statistics, in terms of fuel levels, tire pressure, um, uh, mileage, uh, fuel economy, or anything else like that. And so if Apple wants to serve up any advanced functions that have to do with actually driving the car itself, it's kind of out of luck at the moment. Yeah, so let's talk about changes. I mean, if Apple wants to continue to contribute beyond CarPlay, what does Apple have to add in terms of its abilities? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's two ways to think about this. One is that it could evolve CarPlay into something more. And, um, you know, Maps already exists there, but it's basically just the smartphone version of Maps projected onto the screen in the car, which means um, you get all the same navigation features. You get the point of interest database. You get the, you know, turn left here or whatever. Um, but it doesn't take any account of, you know, the car and the information that the car knows about you and what you might be doing or anything like that. Um, so it can't tell when you're about to run out of gas and proactively suggest that you visit a gas station, for example, or, you know, based on the combination of current fuel levels and what it knows about your fuel economy, uh, suggest a gas station that's along the way on a longer journey. Um, it can't tell necessarily what your destination is and therefore uh, proactively look for parking. Um, or um, know what kind of car you're in and therefore which parking lot's actually going to be the most efficient based on pricing for smaller cars versus larger cars or anything else like that. It can't optimize your route based on the kind of car that you have. Some cars will do better on highways, other cars will do okay on small side streets and so on. Um, or at least achieve different fuel economy in those different settings. So these are all things that car manufacturers themselves are working on right now in terms of providing really smart navigation that takes into account real-time road conditions, which is another thing that uh, the smartphone doesn't necessarily know, but also how the actual car that you're driving is performing. And so 
if Apple wants to evolve CarPlay, it needs to be able to tap into those sources of information from the car. And the big barrier there is that Apple can't get that information and the car manufacturers are likely to be very unwilling to share that information with Apple. You've got some workarounds. You could get a, a dongle from Automatic or another number of other companies that plugs into your car's OBD2 port and then interfaces with an app that could then feed that information in a very indirect way into something like CarPlay. But that feels like a really kludgy workaround and it's certainly not something that Apple can really own itself. And so the question just becomes, you know, how does Apple evolve from here? And this, I think, is what lends at least some credence to the idea that I originally considered somewhat far-fetched that Apple might actually make a car um, because the car manufacturers see Apple and Google uh, but especially Apple as a huge threat because they want to drive new revenue streams they want to drive differentiation through their in-car technology and if the in-car technology is entirely provided by somebody like Apple that both removes the revenue opportunity and uh, removes the opportunity for differentiation through technology um, and so they're likely to resist Apple's efforts to push CarPlay further into the car uh, and into some of those smarter navigation-related functions. And so that's why I'm less skeptical than I was instinctively at first uh, about the idea of Apple making its own car because uh, Apple's always taken this kind of tightly controlled, tightly integrated approach to all the different domains in which it's played. And it seems increasingly unlikely that it'll be able to do that with the car unless it's actually making the car or at least working in very close partnership with whoever is making the car. Um, and so I think, you know, extending CarPlay, assuming that Apple can get car makers cooperation in doing that is one possibility. But I do think making its own car at some point down the line is another way in which Apple might pursue all of this. There, there's an interesting historical parallel here with uh, mobile carriers and car manufacturers, right? Because mobile carriers always kind of existed in cramming in their own software into the phones that people were buying into right. because they always wanted to add their own features again with with the goal being differentiation like you were saying it's also interesting because there just simply aren't that many car manufacturers considering the number of cars that are made in the United States or around the world and 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 so there's a there's a relatively small number of providers so to speak of cars versus cell phone service um, so I think that's a really interesting point you make about the about how Apple may not be able to get very far in. I mean, when Apple took off with AT&T, it hadn't yet become the massive company that it is because the iPhone is what made it a massive company versus right. a quickly gr growing company. And, and it, it does seem like car manufacturers would be less likely to trust Apple nowadays simply because of its size and its power. And the history right. yeah, of what they've done to, you know, carriers, at least by perception. I mean, they've been very good for carriers, too, but they've certainly reduced a lot of the power that carriers have around uh, differentiating themselves. And they basically killed, you know, the rise of the smartphone, which was not just Apple, but certainly triggered by the iPhone, um, you know, largely eliminated the opportunity for the carriers to make money through things like music and video directly, because those just became apps on a smartphone that the carrier didn't control. They just carried the bits, basically. Yeah. So, so I mean, if Apple were to make a car, that would take some major changes within Apple as an, as an organization in terms of its skill sets and abilities. What do you see being necessary for Apple to pull that off if we're to actually make and sell a car successfully? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been the reason for my initial skepticism. And I'm still somewhat skeptical that it will make a car just because everything else it's done has been essentially a different flavor of computer that ultimately combines more or less the same elements. And the challenge with a car is, 
you know, the vast majority of the cost of the car is nothing to do with the technology. It's all the physical objects that go together to make a car, you know, the frame, the engine, the wheels, the transmission, everything else, you know, I mean, it might be an electric car and therefore you wouldn't have all of those elements, but um, you'd still have a lot of them and still the vast majority of the cost would be caught up in physical hardware. Um, that's not computing hardware per se, but just, you know, vehicular hardware. Um, and so the most likely scenario is that Apple partners with somebody to do this. And whether that's an existing car manufacturer or more likely uh, one of a range of these, you know, essentially OEMs, um, essentially independent equipment manufacturers in the car space that do kind of contract manufacturing, it seems like that's the most likely way that Apple would go. Because I don't think it's going to be building its own factories or anything like that anytime soon to actually build car hardware. But I think it would partner with somebody that has the skill set to do that and then buy in the components as needed. Uh, Apple would obviously do the design side of things. And Johnny Ive and uh, Mark Newson and others have certainly talked a lot about the fact that they don't like the way that most cars look today. You know, Johnny Ive famously has driven around in a Bentley, which is, you know, one of the best designed cars, both in and out, uh, that you can find. But he's generally disappointed with the other cars around him, from what we read. Um, so certainly there would be a huge design element, both in terms of the look and feel of the car, but also in terms of the way that the hardware and the software would integrate and work together and so on. And that's a completely new thing for Apple to be doing. Um, but yes, manufacturing, testing, um, you know, your iPhone crashes from time to time. It may not crash quite as often as a Windows PC or something like that, but, you know, a a software crash in a car might well lead to a crash crash um, and so you have to be very cognizant of the performance requirements in something like in-car software as opposed to smartphone software it simply can't afford to fail um, in the way that we're used to sort of PC and other and smartphone software performing and so um, that's another thing is that Apple will just have to think and develop a whole new skill set around extremely reliable, robust, non-error-prone, uh, non error-proof um, software as well around all of this, which would be an interesting departure. It's much uh, better suited to a company like, you know, BlackBerry that has the Cunix operating system that's using nuclear power stations, or even Microsoft, which for all the flaws of Windows as a PC operating system, makes a lot of embedded software that's used in industrial applications where you can't afford to have failures in software. So there's all kinds of things that Apple would have to change, but I think it would be wrong to assume it has to learn how to make cars. I think that, that part would actually be done by somebody else. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I think if we look at the way Apple has grown as a company, it's been in manufacturing prowess through partnerships, right? I mean, right. Apple produces very little thing, very few products entirely on their own they partner with other organizations and the truth is that's a lot how the car industry works today in the sense that right. components are made by third-party companies you know then ford and the others buy those components and assemble and so mm -hmm. a lot of car manufacturing is about assembly um by the by the major car companies uh, and not to say the assembly is trivial but um you know, I think, the personally, I think Apple's manufacturing ability is a strength going into this, especially compared mm -hmm. to, say, Google, who might want to be doing a self-driving car when they don't have, you know, very much manufacturing background at all. Yeah, but none at all, really. But, yeah. but I do think it's in the it's in the reliability side that Apple, it, the kind of reliability you talked about where human lives are at stake, that mm -hmm. is, I, I can't say that Apple's incapable of that, but that's pretty far outside their skill set to this point. Yeah, it's definitely a change in mindset. Yeah, they haven't sure. they haven't done that before. 
Right. Um, it'd be interesting to see and watch that go. I, I, I mean, I think I think HealthKit is an interesting sort of start into Apple being really attentive to very personal and important issues for people when it comes to their safety and health. Um, Apple seems to have been meticulous about HealthKit and the way information becomes available. Um, you know, they seem to not be taking any of that lightly. They're partnering with big institutions and research um, that could have dramatic health consequences for a lot of people. Um, there's something of a seed of attentiveness to 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 ro- very robust reliability um, for human safety. Essentially, right. it'll be interesting to see culturally if that can continue to grow within a company that, like you said, hasn't had to deal with too much consequence if an iPhone crashes. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Any other last thoughts about the about what we know so far as, far as an Apple car is concerned? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there are all these different other bits and pieces that you can kind of fit into this narrative where you want to. There was a report from the Guardian newspaper in the UK recently that Apple had been applying to get access to a car testing facility uh, in Silicon Valley that's been used by other manufacturers of cars, and especially self-driving cars. You know, it's uh, an old, I think it's an old military base where there's basically every kind of road scenario that you can imagine, overpasses and bridges and different kinds of things like that, that you'd want to test your car on. Um, so Apple's just applied to use it. We have no idea why. We've no idea whether it's building a self-driving car or something else, or whether this was just testing CarPlay in somebody else's car. Um, but, you know, that's another data point. And then, you know, they've just recently acquired some land in San Jose, which is about the same size as the land on which they've built their new, or are building in their new campus, um, you know, at a time when they are building that new campus and therefore don't necessarily need any new office space, especially, you know, a year or two down the line when something actually might be built on there. So that's another sort of data point where you want to, you know, are they building that in order to build a facility where they could do their own car testing, for example? Um, so all kinds of other interesting data points around the car thing. None of them uh, confirm it by any means, but there's certainly plenty of evidence around that Apple's getting very serious about cars, that they're hiring people from Tesla and elsewhere that know a lot about building cars. Um, and so, you know, it's becoming more and more credible all the time, even though, as we've discussed, there seems to be a long way to go for Apple to actually build a car itself. Well, and I, th- I do think there's still a long way to go for self-driving vehicles. I, I had a chance to sit, at, uh, to, to sit in a, on a TED Talk by a guy named Sterling Anderson, who is, he's the Model X uh, project director for Tesla and actually got his mm. PhD at MIT and, and and specialized in autonomous vehicles. And it was a fascinating TED Talk kind of describing the way you approach programming a car that can drive itself, um, which was mm-hmm. the focus yeah. of his research. And, you know, I came away really excited at what self-driving cars will be able to do and also a little bit sad that it feels like we still have a long way to go before that's really right. the case. I mean, there's so many ways that can be disruptive. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, I got to admit, I have a hard time imagining Apple being a pioneer in technology that's smart and sophisticated and most importantly, data intensive. Right. Um, I think Apple does incredibly sophisticated things in product design. But self-driving vehicles are a lot about data management. It's about processing mm. information quickly, efficiently, and correctly. And that seems to be a, a skill that is not one of Apple's strengths. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, by all accounts, we're sort of about 10 years away from really seeing mass market adoption of self-driving cars, if not 15. And, you know, assuming Apple is working on something like this, I'd expect it to show up within five. So, right. you know, that that in and of itself suggests that version one, at least, of the Apple car would not be self-driving. Um, and that, that's always seemed one of the aspects of this that's more far-fetched is that, you know, Apple would somehow come out with a self-driving car within the next few years. So um, I, I'd agree with that assessment, I think. Yeah. In fact, if you think about it, Apple is always, every time there's a new major product rumor from Apple, there's always some tacked on sort of groundbreaking feature that doesn't surface. Right. Like people predict some groundbreaking <laughs> right. feature like with wishful this new thinking. Product. Yeah, yeah, very wishful thinking. And I think the self-driving ability is going to be the thing that everybody complains about if Apple does eventually launch a car, is that right, they'll say, right. hey, what? I thought this thing was supposed to drive itself. <laughs> Never mind the fact that it's amazing yeah. in other ways. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, All right. and I should mention that that TED Talk isn't available online yet. They had the Our university put on the conference, and they haven't put up the TED Talks yet. But when it is, oh, okay. I'll make sure to mention it cause in a future podcast because it was fascinating. It was really cool. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks. All right, well, that wraps up that topic. Um, let's move on to our third topic um, this week, which is talking about kind of trends in Apple retail. Um, number of sort of smaller items, I mentioned some of them up front, going on in Apple retail at the moment. Uh, iPods moving off uh, the tables and onto the accessory wall in stores, the iPad smart signs that used to sit by a lot of the products in stores and offered information about those products have been removed. And we're now having a, a pricing app that's going to show up on Macs and iOS devices instead to offer some of that same information on the devices themselves rather than needing a separate device. Um, Apple Watch in the last few weeks has gone from requiring a an appointment for a try-on to kind of walk-in uh, and so on. And then, you know, obviously with the Apple Watch launch itself, a number of things about the way that Apple has traditionally done retail changed fairly dramatically. So all of that also in the context of Angela Aarons taking over as head of retail a while back. Um, there's a lot going on in retail at the moment with Apple. So lots to, to talk about there in the last few minutes of the episode today. So Aaron, I'll, I'll let you kind of kick us off on that topic. What, what were your thoughts about what's going on there at the moment? It all feels like fine tuning, all of it, right? I mean, there's there, uh, with the exception of the Apple Watch, um, everything else, and I think that was just necessitated by the nature of the product launch and the nature of the product, right? Since it's it's jewelry mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think uh, I, I think we're seeing a massive fine tuning happening around Apple stores right now, which is is an interesting and surprising strategy for me, only because it feels like it, it feels like you could just build more stores and. and uh, and still make a pretty big impact in terms of Apple's growth. Um, fine tuning seems like it, it seems like a surprising strategy to me um, because it, there's there's attention that has to be paid to the fine tuning process that could go into selecting new store sites, right? And it seems like Apple, at least in the U.S., has shifted from a growth strategy in retail to a refinement strategy. And maybe that just fits better with Angela Aaron's skill set. Um, but it, 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 it seems to be a signal that Apple is focusing on the stores it has rather than new ones, at least domestically. Right. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean... Um I think over the last couple of years now, Apple's been adding at least twice as many new international stores as it's been adding domestic stores in the U.S. So definitely that's where the focus is from an expansion perspective. 
Um, and none of these changes feel like all that dramatic or all that kind of earth shattering. I mean, iPods have obviously been dwindling as a, an Apple product category for some time now. Um, meanwhile, they have a completely new category in the form of the Apple Watch. We might have a new form factor with the iPad coming out soon. We've got a you know proliferation of MacBook options again after a period of some consolidation with a new you know MacBook um, coming out recently. And so, you know, that store space is going to be needed for other things. That that so it seems a logical change. Um, those iPad smart signs were apparently based on iPad 2s, so they're aging and would have needed to be replaced at some point anyway. And do you really need a separate display that might be confusing to people who think it is an iPad that's for sale rather than just a display about something else. So all of these things feel sort of fairly obvious and fairly incremental in nature. I think one of the most interesting things to me is kind of the Apple Watch sales process with the longish sort of pre-order period, um, the appointment-based try-ons, and the real emphasis at the time that the device went on sale that this was not going to be something where they wanted people standing in line at the stores. And I think one of the big questions I had then, and I got a lot from reporters at the time, was, you know, does this signify a change in the way that Apple sells iPhones as well going forward? And obviously we're only about a month from that happening uh, with a new iPhone. And I'm very curious to see how that changes. And obviously there are some things about the Apple Watch that are unique and different. A, it's brand new. People don't have any experience with it, so they need to get some sort of hands-on with the product. Um, B, it's a very personal device, easily Apple's most personal, and that you actually wear it on the body, and so fit and finish and how it looks with your clothes and that kind of thing, uh, and you know which band and so on you want to choose is very much more personal than it has been with many more options available as well than in the past. And so there are things that are different about it, and I wouldn't expect Apple to mimic all of those things with the iPhone launch uh, next month. But um, I wonder if there are some elements like the online ordering, they're trying to dissuade people from showing up in long lines at the stores and so on, might be things that we'll see um, subtly change with the launch of the iPhone as well. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there, it's funny. With retail, I feel like it's this massive Apple business and lessons about a particular kind of business like retail that a lot of people forget. I mean, you know, there's no there's no company on earth that sells more per square foot than Apple does in its retail stores, just in terms of revenue per square right. foot. And so there's a huge lesson just for retail as an industry from all of this. Um, but I think one of the things that we're seeing change right now is, and I think this has something to do with Angela Aaron's personality, um, Apple retail stores used to have like a almost like a concert or rock star sort of vibe to them. When a new store would open, people would line up around the block just to get a shirt. I mean, not even necessarily buy stuff from an Apple store. Um, and then with you know each subsequent iPhone launch, people were waiting in line, you know, for all day hoping to get the particular iPhone model that they wanted. It really feels like. Apple right now, and I think this is driven by Angela Aaron, so trying to get away from that sort of rock concert vibe as far as Apple mm -hmm. stores are concerned. And, and yeah. there could be a number of good reasons for that, um, one of which is I think that drove away a lot of people from Apple stores. Right. Um, this idea that, you know, it was a crowded place. Mm -hmm. I, I think Apple doesn't love that. and. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think the rock concert vibe is something, it really feels like Apple's trying to get away from that. Like they're trying mm -hmm. to make the stores a place that are just sort of like stable and always successful and always there and very nice, um, but not necessarily 
driving a cultural phenomenon in the way that a rock concert does. Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like uh, the lines outside are always great for PR because it suggests, you know, strong demand and so on when a new product comes out. But it's ultimately a poor experience for somebody who's standing in line for hours and hours. And as you say, somebody else who comes along might be considering going into the Apple store and sees a line outside, might not understand that that's just for one particular product and they could still walk in and buy something else off the shelf. It's off-putting. And so um, it has its pros and cons for sure. But I do wonder with Angela Aaron's background in, you know, high fashion retail that, you know, perhaps that felt like something that she immediately wanted to change, something that she wants to move away from culturally, where there are lines outside the stores and where it's a much more accessible experience. For those things that are on sale today, you just come in, you can buy them and walk out. For those things that aren't on sale right now, you actually order them online and get them delivered to your home. Um, And so you kind of eliminate this whole queuing phenomenon um, which you know detracts from the overall experience of what's always been one of the most pleasant sort of retail experiences there is where you can just kind of walk in you can browse undisturbed if you want to but you can find somebody who's friendly and willing to help who isn't on commission who will just help you find what you want figure out if it's right for you or not and so on and so um, yeah it, it feels like as you the, ter- the term you used earlier Aaron was fine-tuning it feels like Angela Aarons is kind of fine-tuning that experience. It already works super well in many ways, but there are things that I think Apple can learn from somebody who comes in from outside like Angela Aarons, and I feel like she's making those changes without any dramatic big shift. Um, But those things are starting to change subtly, and I I think we will see some elements of that with the iPhone launch next month as well. That's right. I mean, she comes from a background where you dealt with a, a customer segment for which the retail experience had to be impeccable. Right. I mean, you were selling to very high net worth individuals who expected a, a, a flawless customer service, a flawless retail experience, a flawless environment. Mm-hmm. And, and I think she's taking that ethic. And I think that's where all this is coming from in terms of the fine tuning we're seeing in the stores. Is it's, it's, just, right. it's just essentially the retail stores stepping up their game so that the kind of customer that Angela Aarons is used to accommodating could go into an Apple store and not feel like it was any different than shopping at Burberry, right? In terms right. of the attentiveness right. and the efficiency and the beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I think that wraps up that topic for us. And so now we're just left with the one last segment, which is our weekly pick, which is a reminder to listeners is where one of us, and we do tend to take it in turns, uh, will recommend something that we've been using or have discovered recently that's uh, that we've been enjoying or that's been helpful in our lives. And today it's Aaron's turn, and I understand he has some websites to recommend. Yeah, this is sort of a meta pick of the week. <laughs> only, only because I like getting, when I have to buy something, I like I, I like doing a lot of research on it, and I like getting what I think is the best version of something when I'm buying it. Um, and so as a result, I've kind of honed in on some of my favorite sources of information about products. And there are three websites I want to recommend, well, really four, um, that I want to recommend um, that are great resources for finding a highly recommended version of a product. Uh, The first one is a website called Cool Tools, um, and we'll link all of these on the website for for the podcast. But Cool Tools was started by a guy named Kevin Kelly as a main as an email list back in 2000. And it is essentially a massive repository of valuable and interesting tools of all kinds of shapes and sizes. In fact, um, 
the the recommendation from yesterday was an estate planning book for pet owners so that when your mm-hmm. pet dies you can know what to do in your or not, not when your pet dies sorry when you die when you, you die, can have right. an estate plan that will care for your pet after you pass away and it just mm-hmm. is full of all kinds of things like somebody's favorite cleaning product or somebody's favorite mm-hmm. road atlas like there are a bunch of great ideas and these are just some recent ones from the website so that's cool tools mm-hmm. um, another one is pretty well known already it's called the wire cutter it has a sister website called the sweet home they take very much a, a, a consumer reports kind of approach to products um, they don't have you know a huge volume of products that they've reviewed but the products they do review they do it pretty meticulously they put a lot of work into it um, mm-hmm. i've bought wire i bought products based on wire cutter sweet home recommendations and i've been really happy with those and then finally the last one is a project by sean blank um, who uh, has several different products he's a pr- or projects he's a pretty creative guy um, but he has a website called tools and toys Uh, that takes a very similar approach to cool tools where they just sort of, you know, recommend all kinds of things. Um, They're not narrowed on tech necessarily, but uh, they do give pretty thorough reviews when they do. They've done some pretty amazing camera reviews. Um, And uh, it's it's just another one of those websites. I have all of these in my RSS feed and and, uh, I'm constantly saving products for later in Amazon. So that way, right. to my wish list, you know. So that way, if if uh, if I ever need uh, uh, a new hatchet, I've mm-hmm. probably got it in my wish list from one for as a recommendation right. from one of these websites. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I, I use the wire cutter and Sweet Home quite a bit as well. I'm not as familiar with the other two, so I'm gonna have to go check those out. But thanks for recommending those to us. Um, they are, you know, this is the kind of thing that I think all of us do occasionally, whether you use consumer reports or just kind of look at what's recommended on Amazon or whatever, you know, we all have a different ways of finding stuff. So good to have a few more options to add to the arsenal there. Well, thank you for being with us, our listeners. We're grateful that you spent this past sort of 45 minutes with us. We will put up various links and so on relating to the podcast on the website, which is at podcast podcast.beyonddevices um, we also have a twitter handle now which is just bdpcast um, that was the shortest available uh, handle that I could find and so if you can't figure out the url for the website um, which is a bit tricky then go on twitter to bdpcast and uh, the links will be there as well as links to some older episodes and things as well uh, again I'm Jan Dawson my co-host is Aaron Miller we thank you for being with us and we look forward to being with you again next week thanks <laughs>